We come to Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to read our passage for us this morning, starting at verse 27. Starting at verse 20. I'll, well, I'll back it up uh, to verse, well, all the way to 26. I'll back it. I'll start at 26. Brothers, this is Paul who, who wrote most of the New Testament. He's delivering a sermon in Jerusalem. Sorry, not in Jerusalem, but two Jews in a synagogue. Paul says to these Jews, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. The him that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Behold, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's what we just read in Psalm 55. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That means he died and he's still in the ground. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I'm going to pray before we dive into this. Father, your word is sharp. Lord, it is powerful. And I pray this morning um, that we would humble ourselves before it that we would recognize that we have no other means of living a godly life. We have no other means of following you, but by the revealed word of God, which leads us to the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. And so we, we pray that as, as Peter encouraged us, that we would pay attention now, Lord, that we would do well to pay attention to this prophetic word. So God, raise our hearts and our eyes to understand, open uh, uh, us to understand you Lord, this is a miracle that only your Holy Spirit can do. And we pray now that you would be at work in those who are blind to open their eyes, Lord. And those who are dull, Lord, that you would give them um, alertness to your word and, and what it has in store for your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the middle of a three-part kind of mini-series here in Acts. Paul has begun a sermon what happened was they traveled to a synagogue, which was like the Jewish church at the time. And it, they met on Saturdays, which was the Sabbath. And there was some synagogue leaders and they were reading the scriptures. And they ended up calling out to Paul and his friend. And they said, would you bring us some encouragement? Would you like to stand up and help us? This word, um, um, if you have any word of encouragement, means to come to our, our aid. Come and help us. So would you come and help us with this? And Paul is always ready to preach. 
And he stands up and he begins to preach. And, and last week, and so we're going to do this sermon and this interaction in three parts. And you'll see the end of that next week. And so last week, we covered two main features of salvation. Number one was that, elect, um, that election is the foundation of salvation. Now, those, that sounds like a lot of theological jargon, right? But the, the essence is that when God began his work in the world, he began by choosing a person, an actual person. His name was Abram. And Abram was chosen and called out to follow God. That's the first sort of act of salvation after the Tower of Babel, which we also mentioned last week, where God curses and creates the nations, and then he calls out Abraham in order to bless those nations that had been cursed under sin. And so Abram is called out, he's chosen, and that provides the foundation of salvation. That we understand that anyone who knows God is not because they were so wise, and they were so thoughtful, and they were so wisdom-seeking that they thought, oh, I'm going to try to get to know this creator. No, God calls, and he chooses. And so we have election as this major feature of salvation. And the reason why election is good news and why it matters is because we also learned about depravity in salvation, which is that God chose, he called out, he saved, right? This man, Abram, had a big family. They settled, settled in Egypt, and then there they became slaves. And when they called out for help to this God that had chosen them, he responded, he saved them, and they went through the Red Sea. They're just utterly miraculous. He, he literally bent the laws of nature in order that these people would be saved and they would leave their slavery. That's a New Testament picture of us leaving our sin behind. And we're going to see a little bit more about that. But what happens is these people get to the desert and they just start looking back. They start complaining. They start living with regret. They start worshiping false gods. Like in the middle of God saving them, they turn around and they worship false gods. Because they want something they can see and touch, and they're not sure about this invisible God thing. And so, what Paul teaches us is that we, no matter how much good God does for us in nature and in the world and in common grace, we would never choose to follow him. We would never obey his law. We, we just wouldn't. We don't. We can't. That's what depravity means. It means you can't. It means it does not matter what your intentions are in Israel all the time. They came back to God and they said, yes, we'll obey your law. We would love to be blessed by you, God. Let's, we're going to obey you now. And generation after generation, king after king, judge after judge, failures. They could not follow God. They couldn't get it together. No matter how much God did from them, that's depravity. How those are linked is it's great news that God did his greatest work when you were at your worst. God didn't choose you because you were special or sparkly or wonderful. He chose you because you're none of those things. And he chose to do his greatest work when you were at your worst. And that's how we know when you fail, when you mess up, God's not going to cut you loose. Because he saved you because he chose you. Not because you did something good. And so that's a tremendous, that's how Paul starts his word of encouragement. Oh, we don't even have that. So today's, today's sermon is, is proof of life, which means how do we know we can be encouraged? How, what's the proof? How are we sure that this is really true? This is how Paul begins his encouragement, which is that you are awful and your culture is awful and your people are awful. But God is good despite that. That's how you can be encouraged. Our encouragement is in God's goodness, not in our goodness. 
God's goodness never fails. It never stops. It never runs out. Yours does by the time your feet hit the floor in the morning. And so this is the context. And, and so he moves on to further develop this word of encouragement. He's going to develop it more. And so he goes on to say, now, brothers, Jews, and those who fear God, which means sons of Abraham, and those who just want to know more about God, listen to this. And he says, to us has been sent this message of salvation. So there's a message here. That's it. God sent a savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, ironically, he's identified as the king who would follow King David. He would be just like King David. David was actually a good king. He led the people to God. He feared God himself. When he messed up, he said, I have sinned. He repented. And, and God said, I'm going to give you a king who's kind of like David, only way better. He'll never fail. He'll never stop reigning. He'll never got booted off the throne and he'll never die. Your king will live forever. But when Jesus comes, he's identified not primarily as a king, although he is one, but he's identified as a savior. Why a savior? Because you look back at the mess that is Israel and you realize salvation is kind of important at this point. We don't just need a king who can give us a law or a kingdom. We need somebody who can help us to live in that kingdom. Because the gospel of the kingdom is only good news if you are not an enemy of the king. So that's why we need a savior who is a king. The king saves us from being punished and banished from the kingdom. Do you sort of see that? So we're given a savior and he comes as a message. Now, interestingly enough, he begins with this in verse 27 for those who live in Jerusalem. He starts telling a story. He's looking back a few years. And he's looking back to Jerusalem during the time when Jesus was in public ministry. So the message of salvation is encapsulated here in these two or three verses, verse 27, uh, right down to 30, even, sorry, down to 31. The message is the story of Jesus Christ. The message of salvation is not another list of propositions. It's not another list of God's characteristics. It's not a list of God's law or a reminder of his work. The message is the man. The message of salvation is not more script, more words. It is the word, the final word from God. It's a man and his name is Jesus Christ. And the message is wrapped up in what happened there in Jerusalem. And he goes through this story, and there are three main features to this message. And you can find them all right in your text. The, the first one is that he was rejected. That's the first feature of this message of salvation. The man Christ came. He, just like God, demonstrated his power. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He, did, he raised the dead. He healed the sick. He turned water into wine. He demonstrated his divine power. And what was the response of man? No different than Israel. Rejection. And Paul tells us that he was rejected for two main reasons. These are both in our text. Number one, that those in Jerusalem fulfilled the scriptures because they did not recognize him and they did not understand the prophecies or the prophetic scriptures, which are read every Sabbath. Now, remember, Jesus came to a Jewish people that believed in and listened to the Old Testament, the first half, the thick half of your Bible. That's what they read for generations over and over and over again. And it says 
that when Jesus came, the people rejected Jesus because when they saw him, they did not see in him proof that he was God, which is, that's willful ignorance, right? Because he demonstrated his divinity. He, he said he was a son of God. He declared God to be his own father. He, he, over and over again, he proved his divinity, but they did not recognize it. In other words, they kept their eyes shut. And the second thing is that they did not understand the Old Testament, which means that they didn't understand the prophecies. They did not look at the Old Testament and rightly understand its purpose. They looked at the Old Testament and they thought, these are great traditions. We can just keep doing these. We'll do our festivals. We'll keep the Sabbath and God will be pleased with us. Well, they missed the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament is that we cannot please God. There's a wonderful, rich Jewish culture that is built out of the Old Testament, to be certain. He provided the Jews a beautiful way of life, a way of life that respected the family, a way of life that dealt with sin, a way of life that showed societal coherence and corporate worship. He gave them a beautiful model for living. But nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures, is there any assurance that we can please God and, and know for certain that our sin is covered and dealt with? They had to kill a bull every year and shed its blood. Well, the New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls can never cleanse us from our sin. We needed a lamb of God. We needed a divine sacrifice. And so in this Old Testament, as they were reading, they thought we can do better than our forefathers. We can please God. We can follow the law. And instead of receiving a savior, they thought finally someone who can do this for us, they rejected him because they did not understand the Old Testament. So number one, they rejected him. And I just want to read for you Matthew chapter 13 because this was clear in Jesus' mind long before he was outright rejected. Jesus is telling parables. He tells a whole bunch of parables in Matthew 13. And the disciples are wondering, what's the deal with the parables, Jesus? Why are you telling all these stories in like, in illustrations? And he says about them, he says about the listeners, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can, or with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see and hear and understand, and with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. In other words, these people have closed off all of their perception of this message. They have shut down their eyes, they have closed up their ears, and they have blocked off their hearts. They do not want to be saved. They don't want a savior. They want a king who's going to make them feel good about themselves. They do not want a savior who's going to expose how horrible they are. Now, remember last week, the whole point, the whole way we are encouraged is to recognize that we are horrible, but that God is good. That's what, make Christ, that's what makes Christianity so sweet because there's no depth of your terrible past that God's goodness cannot overcome through redemption. But these people had turned off their senses. They did not want a savior. They did not want somebody who would expose their hypocrisy. And so they shut it down. They, they rejected him. And, and it says that this fulfilled the Old Testament as well. Not only did the New Testament, the Old Testament, predict that a Messiah, a Savior, would come, but it also predicted that he would be rejected. It predicted that he would be turned aside and cast aside. 
which the Jews did. Now, so he was rejected. That's one part of this message. Number two is that he was blameless. This is part of the story, right? They fulfilled the scriptures by condemning Jesus. And verse 28 says, and though they found no guilt in him that was worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And so that's a reminder of that Easter story. When Jesus went through three separate legal trials between Herod and Pilate and the high priest, and none of them could actually identify any sin, either politically or religiously. Jesus had literally done nothing wrong. He was blameless. Pilate says in Luke chapter 23, when, when they demand crucify him, get rid of him, kill him, how does Pilate respond to him, to them? There's no guilt in him. How can I be a good leader and crucify and execute this man? He's done nothing wrong. And so we have this New Testament record that Christ not only came as predicted by the Old Testament, but he was not like King David, who was a good king, but not blameless. He was not like the judges who knew the word of God, but failed. Okay, he was not like Moses, who was a great leader, but then failed. Jesus was blameless. From birth until his death, he was blameless. This fulfills the Old Testament demand in the sacrificial system that they had to take a lamb that was uh, without spot or blemish. And they had to sacrifice this lamb and they had to paint the lamb on their doorpost when they were in slavery. And when the angel of death would pass over, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is a new story for you and we can fill more details in later, but God essentially judged Egypt for not letting the people go. And the last, the worst curse was death of the firstborn child. But he said to them, if you slaughter a lamb who is blameless without spot or blemish and paint the blood on your doorpost, when the angel of death passes over your house, you won't see God's judgment. Your, your children, your family will be safe. That's the picture of Christ. That, that's, that is our reality, that the lamb who is spotless and blameless died as a shield over your house, as a shield over your life against God's judgment. Why? Because God judges sin. God is perfect. God has a law. God is utterly just. And none of you want a God who's not just, right? When you look at the world and the terrible things that we see go on, you do not want to worship a God who's not going to take care of sin, who's not going to give it what it deserves. The problem is that we fall into that as well. And so Jesus provides a relief. He provides security in the blameless Son of God, the Savior who was blameless in all that he did. And so that's another part of the message, this message of salvation, that he was rejected and that through his rejection was crucified and in the crucifixion served as the substitute lamb who died instead of you and me. And we're going to get to the, the conclusion of that at the very end. But what's the third part of this message of salvation? He was rejected. He was blameless. And then the text tells us down in verse 31. Sorry. Back in 29, they had carried out what was written. And so even his crucifixion was predicted in the Old Testament that they divided his clothes and that he, he even spoke scripture from the Old Testament from the cross. And when he had died, they took him down and they laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. In other words, once this evil act had taken place, once they had fulfilled all of this, they laid him in a tomb where dead people go. 
This is the other half of Easter. Stone was rolled away. He came out from the tomb, not wrapped in his grave clothes. His grave clothes were folded neatly in the corner. He came out, and he was alive. And then he appeared to many witnesses. So this is the third aspect of this message of salvation, that he did not stay dead. Part of the message of salvation is that this great leader and this blameless king not only died to shield you from God's judgment, but that he was raised from the dead. Now, this part, raised from the dead, produces for Paul that he launches into the next part of his sermon on the basis of this aspect of the message. This begs a question, doesn't it? It begs a question. He was raised from the dead. Now, I have a friend, and he was actually in that video, and he used to be a traveling apologist. He would go to England and India and all kinds of places to talk about who Christ was and to provide uh, arguments for his resurrection. And, and one time he said he gave one of his best presentations on the proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. He proved it. He just the historical record and the geological record. and Oh, whatever goes into that. And he said he had a young woman come to him after this event, and she said, Mr. Boot, that was an airtight argument. That was an airtight proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. Bravo. And he thought, oh, wonderful. I'm going to lead her in the sinner's prayer, and she's going to be she'll, she'll be a new creation. She'll be a Christian. And her response was, so what? And he said his mouth just dropped open, and he realized it takes more explaining than that. You can't just say to people, Jesus died and he rose again for your sin. People don't know what that means. So the message, therefore, needs to be interpreted. It needs to be interpreted. There needs to be some context given to us to understand why is this a good thing? How does this save me? This is key for you folks. If you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can absolutely do so with a very simple faith. A very simple trust in Jesus Christ. But I would, I would venture that if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be strengthened, if you want to know what you believe and how you got there and why you're safe, we need to pay attention to this next part of the message. Because Paul takes this reality of a, of a resurrected human to which some people might say, so what? That's a fantastic miracle. Means what for me? So Paul launches into this explanation and he interprets the story for us. Because in the first section, he tells us the message. Those are the facts. Those are the facts of Jesus' life. He came, he lived in Jerusalem, he did this, he did that. He died, he was raised again. That's the message. And what a great message it is. But what does it mean? Those facts need to be interpreted such that you can understand them. And that you can own and appreciate them. And so Paul does that for us, starting down in verse 33. He says that he was raised from the dead. That's the point that he launches into the explanation. And he says, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised the fathers, he has fulfilled them to us, his children, by what? Raising Jesus from the dead. So what is Paul saying? God, who made promises to Israel, those promises are yet unfulfilled. You know why they're unfulfilled? Because God said to them, if you obey me, then I will bless you. So the problem with that covenant is that we never did our part. We never obeyed. They never obeyed God. And so God never gave them that blessing that he promised. But when Jesus came and was raised from the dead, suddenly there's some good news. 
all those promises that were pending that had not yet been fulfilled, God's intention for his covenant people yet unfulfilled are now down into the realm of delivered. Have you ever ordered something on Amazon and you see that it's shipped? So you know it's coming. Phew, a couple more days. But it's not there yet. There is some vehicle which takes it from shipped down to delivered, which means on your doorstep, you open it up and you enjoy it. I ordered a new pad of paper last week. And just the enjoyment of opening a new pad of paper. I'll tell you about it later if you're interested. But is there's anticipation. Something is coming. Something good is coming. That's the whole Old Testament. Something good is coming. But it's not good news if you don't know how it gets here. Right? So Paul says, now I've got some good news for you. That's what the word gospel means. You want to know what the gospel means? It means there's good news for you. And here's the good news, that the promises God made are fulfilled. They're done. They are now a reality. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a bold assertion. That's a bold assertion. They're, the promises have gone from pending to present. And I would ask Paul at that point, how can you prove that? You look at the Old Testament, and it is, it is marvelous in the plans that God has for his people to establish them in a land, to secure them from their enemies, to give them an everlasting kingdom. Really? Those are done? Those are delivered? How so? How can you prove it, Paul? And Paul says, let me take you through a journey through a couple passages in the Old Testament. So he provides supporting documents to this good news. He says in the second Psalm, Jesus... Of Jesus, it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You need to read Psalm chapter 2 this afternoon. It is a stunning psalm of the son who is also a king. A son who is also a king. Does that ring familiar to any of you? That's, that's Jesus Christ. That speaks ultimately of Jesus Christ. And this king is not just, doesn't just wear a flower garland and leather sandals and walk through the meadow. This is a king who shatters the kingdoms of the world. This is a king who rules and who demands submission. This is a ruling king with a real kingdom. And it speaks of Jesus Christ, as also it is written of him in the second psalm, Today I have begotten you. And then he goes on, As for the fact that he was raised from the dead and no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's from, psalm, uh, that's from Isaiah 55 and also speaks of Psalm 16. The promise... That God's anointed one would not see corruption. You know what happens when a body goes into the ground. Some of you are, who's a cemetery keeper? Eric. Eric keeps the cemetery, right, in town. He knows about decomposition. We'll get into the details of his job, but he knows about that. When a person goes into the ground, they decompose. They return to the dirt from which they were made. Now, God has a holy one that, he, that would not see corruption. In other words, would not, when he died, decompose. Well, gee, how could that be fulfilled? That person would have to come back from the dead. Now, these Psalms are written about King David in the, in the Old Testament. So you can go back and flip in your Bible to Psalm 16, Psalm chapter 2, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, and you can go through those and you can say, now, wait a minute, Tim. Those Psalms are about David. Those are about David. Those are not about Jesus. Like, it seems like Paul's making a bit of a stretch here. Like, actually, those are about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if those were about Jesus? Then we would know for sure that this is an act of God. 
The problem is that David doesn't fit the description. David doesn't quite fit the bill. Now, on the assumption here Paul is working with is that the Old Testament has authority. The Old Testament is God's word and cannot be broken. So, if the Old Testament, and here's where the rubber meets the road, if the Old Testament has the accuracy for predicting Jesus Christ, now, if you look up some of the math on the prophecies that were fulfilled about Jesus, I mean, it's no coincidence. The Old Testament is God's divine word having predicted the coming of Jesus Christ. If the Old Testament accurately spoke of his ministry and his coming, if it can accurately predict who Jesus Christ was, then it also earns the authority to tell us who he is. Do you see the connection? If it's, if it's accurate to predict his ministry, then it's authoritative to tell us what it means. And so he looks to the Old Testament and he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now David, and Peter makes this argument back in Acts chapter 2, David died and is still dead. History bears that out for us. Peter says, and Paul says too, I can, I can tell you definitively that he is still dead. He's still in his tomb. So this chapter is not yet fulfilled. There is something unfinished about the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually cries out for completion. Because David didn't satisfy the description. Even Solomon did not satisfy the description. God said to Solomon, You will build for me a house. And your kingdom will endure forever. When Solomon died, how did God fulfill that promise to Solomon, who was David's son? Through the line of Jesus Christ. He ascended the throne. He takes the meaning. Jesus is the true David. Jesus is the true Solomon. And so the blessings that God promised the forefathers, this is what we're talking about. Salvation is the receiving of God's promises. Salvation is not just some abstract sense in which you sort of go to heaven at the end. Salvation is that you have received God's promise, that you have a king who is eternal and perfect and who is reigning on your behalf, that you have security from your enemies, that you cannot be snatched from the hand of God, that you are protected by his love. You have received his promise. Now, what about the, what about the earth? What about the land claims? Well, wasn't Israel going to occupy the land in security forever? Yes, but there's a greater fulfillment of that, which is that all of God's people inherit the whole earth, which includes Israel, Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it. So all of God's promises do come to us as our salvation. Salvation is to receive from God that which he intends you to have, which is peace with him and, and living with him and, and harmony with him. Amazingly, Solomon, who was going to receive um, these blessings. Solomon was going to build a temple, right? And he did. David wanted to build a temple, but God said to him, no, you're a, you're a king of war. I'm going to let your son build the temple, which would be the house of God. And Solomon got to build it. And in the prophecy, it said, you will build for me a house for the Lord. But then when Jesus comes to fulfill that, guess what the church is called? The household of God. Jesus is the true Solomon who built the true house of God, the true dwelling of God's people. That's the interpretation of the message. That's how we know what is going on. It is God delivering his promise through Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, when you see God's intention for an eternal kingdom, for, for glory covering the whole earth, all of those are delivered in Jesus Christ. And he delivered them when Jesus was raised 
from the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it so perfectly. Literally states, For all God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. And he put in us his Holy Spirit and as a seal and as a guarantee. In other words, if you're looking for something from God, you will not find it outside of Jesus Christ. There, there is no level of sincerity or devotion or perseverance in whatever beliefs that you have. If they are not Jesus Christ, you will not receive God's promises because he's delivered them in his son. He's made a delivery of his promise and there's no salvation outside of that. I go back to my Amazon uh, analogy. If I order my pad of paper to my office and then I go home to wait for it, I will never get it. It does not matter how sincerely I want to be writing on that pad of paper. It will not happen at my home if it's delivered over there. In the same way, God delivered his promises in one way, in his son. His son fulfilled the demands of the law. His son fulfilled every requirement of God. And through him, we receive his blessing. In him. So go to Christ. Don't wait at home in devotion to your own way of living. Don't wait at home thinking God sees me. He understands me. Yes, he does. And he's given you an answer. He's given you a delivery. He's given you his promises. Go to Christ. And, and in conclusion to that, he gives an invitation. This is how we'll close. He gives an invitation. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So again, he's talking about this Old Testament history. Moses, Moses got the law, right? He went up on the mountain. God spoke to him. There was thunder, there was lightning, and he gave the Ten Commandments on tablets, right? You might know that story from Sunday school. And the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue is the ten-part word of who God is. It's his perfect law. You know, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall worship, right? At the head of the commandments is who we are to worship. It's God alone. Well, how many of us fail in that every single day? I mean... We worship so many other things. We fail in the law. But the law is not the problem. Now, Christians, some of you have been around the church a, a little bit longer. I'm going to talk to you for a minute. Let me help you with the law for just a second. Are Christians bound to the law? Are we accountable to the law? Doesn't that just tie your tongue so easily? I don't know. It's a trick question. Trick question, right? What's the law about? Well, some of us say, well, the, the law is, is, we're not under the law, and so we, we don't need to pay attention to it. We don't talk about it. We don't teach it to our children. But then what do we do? If we get rid of God's law, we start up a church, we start making other rules. We start making a law of our own. We start making a sort of an unspoken law. Well, we're not under the law anymore. We're not under the God's law so we make up our own. We make up laws that we can follow, which is, uh, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, um, don't play football on Sundays. Um, don't, you know, like we make up just a law of our own. And we think, there, now, we, now we've got a good code of conduct. Well, back up. God gave us the code of conduct. It's the law. And we cannot keep it. 
So what does that mean for us? No matter how hard we try, no matter how devoted we are, there is something that traps us regarding the law. It's not God. God doesn't trick us. God isn't playing mean by giving us a law. He's just telling us, this is my intention for humanity. This would be a good society. Imagine, you, imagine in Canada that the majority of the people were devoted to keeping the Ten Commandments. Wouldn't you love to live here? And there is nothing wrong with the law. It's a positive vision for society. It's how society should organize itself. I would love if the majority of the people in Smith Falls kept the Ten Commandments, or at least thought it was important to do so. We thrust it aside and said, well, we're not under the law. And so we're lost. We're trapped. And so Paul says, the law is not the problem. It's us that's the problem, right? That's what the whole first part of the sermon was about. No matter what God did for you, you could never obey. You couldn't even not worship false gods. No matter how much God did for you, you still went and worshipped your car. You still went and worshipped your appearance. You still went and worshipped, you know, your popularity or your career. You still went and worshipped other things. No matter how much God did for you, we are all idolaters. We're trapped. In other words, we're trapped in our own condition. Depravity. We're trapped by it. Don't worry, there's good news. In this man, in this message... Let it be known to you. I pray none of you leave this place this morning without knowing for certain that in this man, you can be forgiven. That you can be not only forgiven, but freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law. You, you cannot make yourself right before God. Can I just remind you, if you're a Christian, let me remind you that you cannot make yourself right before God. If you don't know Christ personally this morning, you cannot make yourself right before God. Do not begin to try. Come to the one through whom good news is proclaimed, which is that you can just be freed. You can be freed from that demand because Christ satisfied it. You know, when, when God first um, expressed his, his public acknowledgement of Christ, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus pleased God so that we're not obligated to. We're not bound by the, the Ten Commandments to make ourselves right before God. The Ten Commandments are still a beautiful vision for humanity, but they are not our means of being acceptable to God. We are freed. We're delivered. Because we are, un- we are utterly unable, but because of God's election, because God has chosen us, He delivers His promises on His own merits, not ours. In other words, think of it this way. Let's go to the Amazon um, idea again. But now imagine you're the delivery driver for Amazon. And God says to you, let's just mix our analogies a little bit. God says to you, I've got these promises. I'm going to load them in the back of your truck. And you go off and you take them home. They're yours. They're all yours. You take them home. We get in the car. And all four tires blow out. We cannot even, if they were handed to us, we cannot even deliver them to ourselves. God's promises, we cannot collect them in any other way other than him delivering them himself. God not, only, God not only has to make the promises, he has to deliver them into his own truck and drive it himself to our house and unload it onto our step and open it for us and draw us to the box. God does everything. That's what election is about. He delivers his promises on his merits. 
He delivers, his, delivers the promises on his character, on his goodness, on his choosing of you. We are recipients because we were unable. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why you were trapped before. You were trapped with a broken truck, no gas, flat tires, nothing. There's nothing you could do to get the promises of God into your life. That's bad news until there's a delivery system, until the promises can be delivered in Christ. And there's this beautiful summarization here, and I'm just going to close with these exhortations. The the gospel is beautifully summarized in four parts. He says that, um, that by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. This is the end of 39. This is how we're closing. In that summary, we see the gospel summary of Jesus Christ in number one, the scope. What's the scope of the gospel? Everyone who believes. This is an offer to all of humanity. What should you do about that? You should recognize you are not beyond the redemption of Christ. There's nothing you have done that could possibly exclude you from accepting this good news and receiving God's promise. You can know that this morning. You are part of the everyone. Don't count yourself out and don't count somebody else out. It's for everyone who would believe and who would trust What's the problem? The scope is everyone. What's part of the problem? It's that we are trapped in our depravity, unable to please God. That's called sin. Sin is judged. We are under God's wrath until good news is delivered. Until there is some delivery, until there is some freedom, we are under God's judgment. That's a problem. And by the way, that's also part of the scope. It's everyone. Everyone's under, everyone has to deal with that problem. How am I going to answer to God for my life? That's the problem. So we have the scope, which is everyone. We have the problem, which is judgment. Number three, we have the means. How do I get this? Belief. Trust. That's not a passive word. Okay, it's not a passive word. To believe and trust in Christ is to abandon all other hope of reconciliation with God. It's it's to say nothing else will do. Nothing else will work. It's only Jesus Christ. It's to acknowledge that God's message is true. It's to acknowledge that God has said, this is it and nothing else. So that's the means we believe and we trust. We accept, we live according to that reality. And then what's the result? What's the result? We have the scope, we have the problem, we have the means, and we have the result. Everyone who believes is freed they are free from bondage and they are forgiven in other words our failure to follow god is forgiven whatever inner sin that you struggle with whatever secret sin you're dealing with now you are forgiven you can be forgiven and you are freed you're freed from the bondage to sin you are freed from the punishment the the penalty for sin you're freed The gospel brings freedom, which reminds us, what are we doing as a church? We're advancing freedom through the proclamation of the gospel. Let it be known to you, therefore. In other words, this message demands a response. How can Christians possibly live? Oh, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to make people uncomfortable with my faith. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Let it be known. Let it be known. Of course, it makes people uncomfortable. We're dealing with a real problem, which is sin and our inability to love and follow God. That's a problem. And I I think a lot of people would like to know how to fix the problem. And we have the means to tell them. We have the means to share with them. They, They can know that God's promises are delivered. I'd like to just read, um, 
the back half of Isaiah 55, just a few more verses. We opened with the first five verses. I'm going to close with another three verses from Isaiah 55, 4 to 7. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. We read this this morning. Behold, you call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. This speaks of the reality that it's not only Jews who get to come to God through Christ. It is every nation. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. That's Jesus Christ. That's his title, the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Now here's the call. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way. In other words, abandon your wickedness. Abandon your sin. Because you can find freedom from it in the gospel. Some of us are, some of us are afraid to expose our wickedness. Some of us are afraid to abandon it and to repent. Listen to this. Let the, uh, let the unrighteous man turn from his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God will abundantly pardon. How can a just God abundantly pardon you and me for our sin? Because the message of Christ is that a blameless lamb was slaughtered and his blood has covered us. His blood has washed away the penalty. The wrath of God has fallen on him instead of us. God has delivered his promises in Jesus Christ. Why is Paul preaching this? To give a word of encouragement. Our encouragement is found in the understanding of the gospel and how it comes to us. The historical facts behind it and then how we come to own it and understand it and believe in it.